Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, hustlers. We know that this 2024, the entrepreneurial journey is filled with challenges. An often overlooked aspect is the time-consuming task of processing payroll and managing government requirements. And did you know that the average admin spends a whopping 50 hours per month dealing with just government compliance? That's time you could be spending on growing your business, or let's be honest, taking a well-deserved break. But fear not, we got a game changer for you. Introducing Sprout Solutions and their tailored solutions for MSMEs called the Payroll Starter. With Sprout Solutions Payroll Starter, you can finally reclaim your time and get your life back on track. Say goodbye to the stress of remembering tax dates or worrying about missed payroll runs. This bundle is designed to make your life easier and your business more efficient. And here's the best part. The cost starts just at 5,000 pesos per month for businesses with up to 10 employees. Yep, you heard that right. That's just 5,000 pesos per month. So why spend another minute drowning in payroll paperwork when Sprout can revolutionize the way you manage your payroll and government requirements? Take the first step towards a more efficient business today. Visit sprout.ph slash payroll starter monthly 5k. If you missed that, don't worry. We have it in the description box of this episode. So click that too. And again, big shout out to Sprout Solutions because your time is too valuable to be spent on paperwork. Reclaim it with their payroll starter. Now let's begin this episode. The Hustle Share Podcast is brought to you by B21, a platform which helps you start your journey with cryptocurrencies. Visit b21.io slash hustleshare and get $2 upon signing up. Also by Ideaspace, a nonprofit supporting innovation and technopreneurship as a path to nation building. Ideaspace runs an annual startup competition. For more information, make sure to sign up for their newsletter at ideaspacefoundation.org slash connect. Also powered by 917 Ventures. Got a startup idea? Join Velocity by 917 Ventures, Globe Telecom's venture builder program that aims to support entrepreneurs by providing up to 50,000 US dollars funding, product and tech development, operational support, and access to the Globe network. Unlock the Globe unfair advantage. Apply now at velocity.917ventures.com. Welcome to the latest playbook of the Hustle Share podcast. We are back after almost a year on the pandemic, and we are with really good friends of ours because we asked the Hustle Share community what they wanted to hear and what they wanted to learn if we brought the playbook format back. The last time we had this playbook, we had one of the guys here. We talked about due diligence, but today we're going to be talking about one thing that's very important in every startup out here and we have the best possible guests to teach us how to do that because today we will be having the co-founders of the number one streaming app in the philippines kumu and let's welcome to the show roland ross and rexy dorado along with joseph acuna of podcast network asia and of course kumu 
That is the terrible, <laughs> terrible freaking uh, intro I did. Welcome to the show, Roland and Rest. No, I like how you, like, you switched on your podcast voice, though. Like, I, I, there's the exact yeah, voice. I heard a little. There's a little bit of code switching there. Uh, the the that, podcast that. on and the clubhouse run. That's pretty cool. Yep, you have to do the podcast run because we are also recording this. And for you guys who are listening to this live right now, you probably are selling yourself short a bit because the, the post-production of this, I will sound like podcast run. But again, before I get carried away, I always ask this. Roland and Rexy. What's our play today? How to choose how to choose co-founder. Co-founders. Nice. I love that. And again, you guys are the best examples to the best co-founders I've ever seen. The dynamic that you guys have between you guys and also your other co-founders is just top-notch. And a lot of people in the crowd today, if you're listening through Clubhouse, would probably agree. But let's start with the million-dollar question first, I guess. Why do you need a co-founder in your startup? Because... This is a lot. A lot of people always ask, "Do I really need a co-founder, and whatnot?" Why do you need some? And tell us a bit about your background before you became co-founders of Kumu. Yeah, I think um, I'll just do something real quick. So I was actually born and raised in Los Angeles, and my mom raised me, and so she didn't really talk about the Philippines that much. So the most I knew about Filipino culture was actually through the food. So. Sinigang, adobo, <laughs> Sinigang for Sinigang Valley. And so, there you go. <laughs> oh, dang, that could be the storyline. No, and, and so, you know, I went to school at the University of California uh, over in Santa Barbara campus. And one of the things about going to school there is uh, it's actually the headquarters of the study abroad program or the student exchange program for the University of California and had an opportunity to go to the Philippines and study for a few months at UP Los Baños. And oh. I fell in love with the Philippines. Yeah. So I was like, oh my gosh, this is my future. I feel more at home in the Philippines than I do in the US. And so I knew in my heart that after I graduated from school, I would go to the Philippines someday. And, you know, after graduating, nice. I accidentally, you know, became an entrepreneur. I helped sell an mm-hmm. internet company. And then with those resources, I went back to the Philippines and mostly engaged uh-huh. in humanitarian work. And so, during that time I was doing humanitarian work, I had this back and forth cadence with uh, the Philippines where I was an entrepreneur and a business person in the U.S. But when I went to the uh, Philippines, it was mostly clean water, anti-sex trafficking, HIV AIDS work, and that wow. type of stuff. And so during that back and forth cadence, that's when Rexy actually reached out to me on LinkedIn and he had founded a nonprofit organization that really inspired me. And this is something wow. that he founded when he was on the East Coast, which was over at Brown right. University. But yeah, I, I guess I'll, I'll kind of throw that off to Rexy. So I didn't know that. I didn't know you you guys met each other on LinkedIn. Wow, that's amazing. Now, Rexy, Roland talked about this. is the this. greatest LinkedIn person in the history I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> he is the chess master. <laughs> the greatest LinkedIn researcher I've ever seen in my entire life, which is pretty fitting uh, considering uh, who the founder is. But yeah, that's amazing. Now, Rexy, before you became the greatest LinkedIn professional in the world, what was your background like? Yes, I was born in uh, I was born in Dumaguete. Uh, I lived in the Philippines for about eleven years before I moved to to the U.S. and uh, I went from like Dumaguete City to Garfield Heights, Ohio, which is like right just outside of Cleveland. And they're probably wow. like if you threw a dart in the you know at a map of the U.S., it's probably one of the 
places that are probably more more different <laughs> than the Philippines, right. more, more so different Midwest. Than the Philippines than like most places in, in America, right? So, uh, I think right. the thing that we had in common was that they were like next to bodies of water, <laughs> but that was really it. And so, <laughs> I went to high school in it was a school of a thousand two hundred. I was one of four Asian kids, uh, and there wow. was one other Filipino. So, I kind of spent a lot of that time like trying really hard to not be Filipino, trying to fit in. Uh, and then in college, kind of making my way back, similar to you know to what Roland was saying, I, I had a trip back home right. after my first year, uh, saw my family again, and just started from there to kind of reconnect to the Philippines. Mostly when I was in college, it, it was mostly through my involvement in like, the Filipino American community. I stumbled into kind of running the Filipino Alliance group in campus just because there was, there was nobody who who wanted to to lead it at the time. And on the other side, I majored in economics and focused right. on like international development and uh, but it would mostly be like the things that we'd read about um, and the places we'd explore would be mostly like India and Brazil and China and rarely ever the Philippines so I didn't really get to you know I, I, when I was coming into my my last year in college I hadn't had a chance to really look at those two things together right like Philippines and being Filipino plus kind of the international development and kind of global economy layer, I was never able to really explore it. And so mm-hmm. my last year, uh, I was able to kind of get a small amount of grant funding and bring a group of people together to, to build this nonprofit called called Kaya Collaborative that brought Filipinos back from the U.S., mm-hmm. mostly the U.S., some from Canada, some from the U.K. And we bring them back to the Philippines for these like three-month internships with tech startups and like mm-hmm small businesses and nonprofits and just people who are building things here. And yeah, and that kind of the time. This brings us to point number one, founding a co-founder where we had a shared passion. Because remember in my earlier in my personal story, I talked about, I had this life-changing experience in college where I went back to the Philippines and felt more at home in the Philippines. And here 10 years later, meeting Rexy, and he's telling me that he created a nonprofit that takes Filipino college students two life-changing experiences in the Philippines. You know what I mean? Wow. <laughs> like, I'm like, what? That's amazing. And, and we're talking like Filipino students. Uh, and this is why I'm so proud of Rexy. He took Filipino students from Harvard, from Stanford, Georgetown, where he went to school, Brown, University of right. London, you know, University of Toronto. These are some of the best universities uh, in the world and exposing them to the Philippines and inspiring them to say like, okay, you know what? I just got a job offer at Amazon, but you know what? I'm going to quit that job offer. And I'm going to try to start an AI company in Makati. Or, hey, you know what? Wow. I could be an investment banker in New York. But instead of being mm. an investment banker in New York, I'm going to go help a family business in Quezon City. And so right. when, when he shared with me this type of stuff that he was doing, I was so inspired that I mm. wanted to help. And I, I think that's one of the key things for point number one is just finding yeah. that, that shared yeah. passion. But yeah, yeah, Rexy, go ahead. Definitely. I guess for the last bit of context is I, I i launched that organization my last year of college I, as soon as mm-hmm. i graduated actually like literally my my graduation night i, I went from like for, I, I threw my hat up in the air and then and then for for dinner we went we we set up a fundraising dinner to kind of launch the uh, our first fellowship program in the philippines so it was like literally straight from from graduating to to trying to make this this organization happen, uh, and I spent the, the those kind of four years. Um, for one of those years, I had a day job in DC, but for for most of it, I was kind of full time on this nonprofit, trying to pay the bills through like grants and like small crowdfunding campaigns and like small mm-hmm. small recurring donations. And and I think to kind of like seg- to segue that into into the the initial question, right? Is right. 
during that time, we had, we had people who were co-founders of it. We had like a, some pretty key leadership people, but there was, at, at the end of the day, it was kind of like an organization that you know, mostly because of like my own mistakes or things that I overlooked or just like, you know, where I was at, at the time as a leader. It, it right. was mostly like a solo kind of uh, a solo entrepreneur, solo founder, type right? Thing, right, yeah, or a solo founder type of thing. Where at the end of the day, it was like yeah. it was hard to imagine their, their organization going without me, and that led to a lot of things that you know uh, by by kind of year four, year five, and I'm surprised we were able to to survive yeah. for that long. It was just clear that we weren't gonna be able to to kind of keep growing how we wanted to, um, and and you know that's partially because mm-hmm. just the model right is, is kind of limited in terms of bringing people back one by one. Uh, but I think also just because there wasn't enough of a kind of group of people to to take it on after you know, I was getting Got to it. a point where I was looking for something something else, you know. And, and part of that too is like by year four or five, I was burned out trying to do the things that I wasn't mm. strong at, right? Or that that you know I could yeah. I could perform on, but like. I would my the the amount of stress that I, I would have over having to like do a like public appearance or talking at fundraising dinner things like that um, right. probably ten times like what would come a bit more naturally to roll. Not that he doesn't stress he not 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 that nah, not that he doesn't stress about it right, but it just comes a lot more naturally to right. that side of things. Yeah, and so that was really you know kind of both from a, a overall like you really do need a strong set of kind of uh, or at least at least a partner that you can you can lean on um, for, to maximize your chances of uh, whatever you're building uh, lasting yeah. beyond you and, and two is the the kind of just being able to to rely on each other's strengths and I wanted to ask because it's just funny the way I met Joseph as well who is my co-founder it's funny because again uh, there's similar parallels but completely random etymologies of how we started you guys are obviously CEO CEO COO Joseph, when I met him, he was actually my lawyer in my first startup party file. And I was a solo founder. So he was the one talking me out of all these bad decisions that I was doing when I was first starting out. <laughs> so our dynamic was, it was like that the whole time. Like I had this crazy idea and he would always tell me, hey, Ron, you're, you're going to make uh, this big, big ass mistake if you do that. Joseph, want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So when I, when I, when I actually met Ron, he was, uh, that was his first startup. I was actually starting uh, my law practice during that time. And because we were around the same age, although Ron will always deny this, we're around the same age. We'd usually go back and forth with each other, <laughs> hang, out every, <laughs> hang out every once in a while. And he'd fit me ideas he'd have about his business, about his startup, about how he wants to do things, you know, about his principles and things like that. And I'm the guy who always shuts it down and tells him that, no, no, dude, it's, it's not a good idea. And then that's how the dynamic started yeah. for us. It was a light relationship in terms of us hanging out as friends at the onset. But it was also yeah. about him trying to rely on me on, you know, throwing ideas and, you know, me trying to pull him back to earth sometimes. So And also because I got into a lot of cap table trouble because I had some co-founder problems, which I will share later on what happens. But before we we talk about all of those things, Rexy and Roland, I want to throw this back at you. When you guys decided to start to create Kumu, let's jump to that point. So you guys met each other on LinkedIn. Walk us through how you decided, all right, we have some similarities. We have a Filipino-American upbringing. We love giving back to the motherland. What was it like when you said, all right, let's break Kumu. And how did you decide that you guys were going to be the ones who will co-found this? And what are the characteristics you saw in each other that you think that made you think that, hey, this might work? Well, I think um, one of the key things is previous 
working relationship, right? So for Kayako, I was a board member and, and helping him. And one of the things is I've always been so inspired by Rexy's vision of activating the Filipino diaspora for the yeah. betterment of the Philippines. And one of the key differentiators of what I loved about Kayako compared to, say, some of the other humanitarian work that I've done in the past is that, you know, sometimes uh, people in Western countries, they, they t- tend to be a little bit too messianic, you know, like, oh, I'm yeah. here to save the country, blah, 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 blah. I'm here to, you know what I mean? And it, it kind of goes back to some neo-colonial type of thinking that I think is actually quite disrespectful to the local culture. Yeah. And that was some of the certain elements that I saw when I would install a clean water project or, you know, do something in a prison or, or, or do something in Tondo or something like that. Whereas right. the type of work that Rexy was doing was side-by-side type of yeah. uh, engagements and, and those types of things. So we would like talk late at night talking about all sorts of different ideas. Remember Rexy, we would just talk about like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we could, you know, it's so weird because actually we're doing it now, but back then, five years ago, five, six years ago, we would always talk about like, wouldn't it be cool if we could help, you know, bring Filipinos together or wouldn't it be cool if we could help uh, tell stories and, and really elevate Filipino culture. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Local audience. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I remember yeah. it was, uh, we actually like kind of met midway in some way. So kind of Roland having come from like the business world in the U S and wanting to, to bring that back to the Philippines on my side, I was already spending right. a lot of time in the Philippines, but uh, I was coming from the nonprofit sector and really seeing the constraints of that and just seeing how much room there was to build something that could scale much more quickly with technology. Uh, and I think that that's, you know, why Roland stood out as like a profile LinkedIn who I reached out to and then just hit it off in the first conversations and kind of over those first couple of years along with him being a board member and just being like a a real a real kind of like mover of people in that role mm-hmm. there is also just like yeah we, we talk about you know hey we should start a, a podcast on like yeah. on uh <laughs> like highlighting Filipino uh Filipino innovators or we should do like right. a, a e-commerce site that that brings like products from the Philippines to the global diaspora or uh there, there were yeah. a couple of ideas that we threw around that were like at different scales but when the kind of idea of Kumu came up it just made sense that it's something that we were like moving towards yeah because a lot of that work so here we are right we're, we're doing this work and you know to Rexy's credit it's really rare to see like Filipino students again from every single Ivy League school plus Stanford plus University of London you know all in the right. Philippines doing work and so the Philippine ambassador to the United States at the time uh, his name is ambassador Jose Quisha and he was all like right. Roland you know you guys are doing great work and then he told me he's like you know, I noticed though that as a business person and your background in technology, you're doing that in the U.S. But when you're in the Philippines, right. it's mostly nonprofit work. And so he was talking about digital transformation. We were talking about you know World Economic Forum generating hundreds of millions of jobs in Southeast Asia, and it, yep. it got to the point where he was like, "Look, what if you did something in the Philippines and you created technology jobs in the Philippines, and that is the way that you impact the country." By creating technology mm-hmm. jobs, not another. Now, now, he wasn't saying it in a disrespectful way. It was like, look, there's already enough people who are trying to build, you know, houses and, and clean water projects. But how many people are actually building technology companies and, and creating jobs, right? And so, it, it really shook me to my core uh, when yeah. I when I talked to, to to Rexy about that. And so, yeah, and so that was really kind of that crystallization where one of our friends had founded a, a real time communications platform 
uh, I see, I don't know if Liza's here, but Franco knows who this person is. And, yeah, you know, the one that's kind of powering, Liza's here. The, the, one, the one that's powering, uh, so this guy founded a technology platform uh, that's also powering Clubhouse. And so, but, you know, yep. this was like six years ago when he just started it, or seven years ago right. when he started right. it. And he was like, yo, you know, there's this movement, you know, and he's, we're talking about like consumer internet companies like WeChat in China and Kakao in Korea. Line in Japan, what Gojek did in Indonesia, what BNG Corporation did in Vietnam. And we're like, well, we don't see anyone really building a consumer internet champion on the Philippines. So, you know, it's like, yo, you know, let's, let's collaborate. And, uh, you know, when talk to Rexy about it, that's when that, the, the idea started to really percolate. Like, what would a consumer internet company that prioritized Filipino creativity look like? And then it just kind of started for what, Rexy, at least several months we were just right. kind of talking about ideas, you know. And how did you guys define the roles? Because that's also the struggle of a lot of startup founders from the get-go, right? Everybody comes in with a certain kind of skill set that they bring to the table and also their experiences and also their biases. And this is where a lot of people struggle, especially if it's just out of necessity, they have to look for a co-founder and that prior chemistry that you guys had does not exist, right? And one of the things that I always see happen is that they end up, you know, either looking for the wrong co-founder and also they struggle in dividing who who's CEO, who's COO. And a lot of people get enamored too much with those C-level titles, but in reality, you're trying to you just build something out of nothing, right? But how did those roles trickle into place? And what were those characteristics or skill sets that you thought uh, you saw each, on each other that made you say, all right, you do this, I do this? Yeah, actually, so Rexy, it wasn't, it was more of like a cohort between me, you, and mm-hmm. uh, Claire at first, right? And maybe mm. uh, this person, a couple of other people, right? right. Actually, we were just kind of going through that. A- actually, at the time, I remember looking at the pitch decks. Kumu was spelled K-O-O-M-O-O. And uh, it was called Kumu. And uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's pretty bad. And- Sound like a kitty drink. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. And so at the time, Rexy was still over at Kayako and, and winding things down. And in the very beginning, I think we were just set on putting together like a, an, an MVP just to see uh, if this thing could get legs. And I remember it was about really seeing if we could put together a product on uh, some sort of prototype and then raise enough funds to get an MVP out. And that if we can get some traction going with those initial set of funds, that's when folks like Rexy and my cousin Claire you know, big shout out to my cousin who was one of the original co-founders uh, yep. of of Kumu, but decided to stay in New York. But yeah, I think what Rexy, I think it just started to be clear. Uh, do you have those Got initial it. emails yeah, where I yeah. asked you because I knew I couldn't do it. I knew I didn't want to do it without you. I remember that. Yeah, sure. So I mean, with, with Claire and yeah. uh, Andrew it was relatively it was relatively straightforward. I think because of the kind of what they specialized in, right? So Claire in design and Andrew more in kind of products more from yeah. the sense of like technical project management and uh and pushing the pieces to to like get to an mvp uh and i think roland it was like pretty clear that you were driving this and bringing everyone together uh i think it was more the details of that that uh we kind of figured out over time i think for me it was a, it took it took a while so you know as in just to just to clarify to right. it, I'm, I'm actually I'm, I'm not coo and I, I, like and i want to clarify that because i'm just not a good option. okay my bad yeah yeah and, and that's right. actually like the initial 
conversation was going to roll and ask me to, to be the CEO with him. And I was like, I'm interested, but like, I'm really yeah, not like a CEO <laughs> type. And I'm just not. Yeah, I remember he's know. like, I want to be a strategy. I was like, what? Yeah, yeah. No, I think at the time I was like, <laughs> yeah, it's strategy or like, whatever. Uh, content, right? I want to be content. And, oh, yeah, yeah. You want to be content. And, That's right. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I think my, my first few right. months actually, I was focused on it because we were a messenger app, right? So I was doing the like recruiting and managing the designers on the like the stickers and those types of like the in-app kind of content and then and then also uh right. helping recruit our, our first set of our first set of live streamers for the live stream feature within the messenger app uh so that was kind okay. of probably my first my first six months and kuma was around that and then, yeah because claire yeah because yeah, because one of the things was, again, you know, when Ambassador Krisha was like, yo, come over, you know, Rexy and I mm-hmm. were like, we can't do this on our own. Uh, you know, I'm not, even though I'm, I have entrepreneurial experience, I've never built an app and I don't have that much technology mm-hmm. experience. And, yeah. and so one, one of the key things was like, okay, who's the product person? And so Claire was my, my first cousin. She's one of the best brand builders based out in New York. You know, kudos to her because for the initial work that she did, uh, you know, everyone on the team kind of jokes like, man, she has a lot of shares. <laughs> and so the thing is, uh, so and, and to this day, right? And so, she, you know, kudos to her. Uh, we love you so much, Claire. And so, so Claire really helped build uh, a beautiful mock-up mm-hmm. and, and design, whereas Andrew, my fraternity brother from college, he was one of the product people that helped InfoSearch, the first SEO company to go public. You know, uh, I invested in a couple of companies that he uh, was a part of that, you know, I ended up losing money on. But again, from those initial heartbreaks, I quickly learned that he had the most kind of product technical experience that I know that I could trust as a co-founder. So like he was driving the, the initial product at the time. So, Got it. you know, yeah. And so I guess it, it really is not just, oh, what role do you play? But we also mm-hmm. sought out and recruited just like the Avengers. I mean, we're talking like, what's that? Rexy was in Washington, D.C. I mean, we were going to New York, San Francisco, Silicon right. Valley, L.A., San Diego. We were traveling all over mm-hmm. the country trying to find, you know, Thor and Black Widow. Right, right. And, you know, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., you know, those types of stuff. So we were on a recruiting spree looking for friends and family who have an equal passion for the Philippines to help build this first uh, initial MVP. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And I think, I think two people who, who kind of came in a bit later, but, you know, are, they, they are essentially co-founders and we talk about them as co-founders, right? Correct. Um, right. Angelo and... The late Angelo co-founders. And, and I think they, they, are, they are like real co-founders and... and uh, right. The, despite the the slight kind of difference in timing and in, in, in the sense that they they mm-hmm. really uh and i think i think in a way that we weren't really envisioning at the time i think like angelo is the founder of like kumu social tv and then yeah. james is the founder of the community right mm-hmm. um and yeah and absolutely really those like yeah. kind of their own institutions almost within within kumu the the company and kumu the the app uh mm-hmm. That I think probably wouldn't have wouldn't have existed, and you know, and, and whenever we think about things like looking into new markets, like it's hard to think about doing it without someone like a you know an Angelo or a, or a James. Yeah, because yeah. they you would call them the the founders of Kumu, the live streaming app, which was right. six or seven months after the MVP, and you know, Angelo was also somebody I knew from college, but he left ahead of us, and he was. Uh, you know, he had helped grow a, a platform to 30 million users before it got acquired by MySpace. And he owned one of the most mm-hmm. popular record labels in LA. 
but then he moved to the Philippines to open up hotels. And I don't know if anyone is familiar, but like, you know, he founded Black Market, Bad Decisions Wednesdays, you know, Finders <laughs> Keepers, um, you know, 2020, you know, all these like crazy nightclubs. And so he was the first person that I called because I said, okay, if we're going to launch an app and the most of the Filipinos are, you know, mostly Gen Z and millennial, I'm like, who's the coolest person that I know in the Philippines? So of course I picked yeah. up the phone and called the owner of Bad Decisions Wednesdays uh, to introduce me to some people. And that's how we met Vicky Herrera, uh, Michiko Soriano and um, all the others, you know, actually, I remember too, Rex, you remember uh, through Rembrandt, uh, that's when I was talking to Isa uh, as well, Isa and Ben, uh, Ben from Bookie and, and Isa Calzado at the time, asking for advice. And Isa also introduced me to Vicky Herrera because they had founded She Talks Asia uh, at the time. Right. So it, a lot of like these conversations and recognizing like, wow, Manila is waste. You know, that whole term Manila is small. I didn't know that coming from Los Angeles. And so I started to see how small uh, the city was as we started to now recruit people where uh, James and Angelo really stepped up as co-founders of the live streaming app when we decided to pivot into live streaming in August, which was six months after the, 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 the beta. Yeah. And they both, they both also started in different places too, right? Angelo is more of a, our kind of first head of growth. Uh, and then it just so happened that the kind of social TV quiz show, quiz moko, like that ended up being our biggest growth lever that, that initial year. He just kind of like shifted to that and, and just made it his own. Uh, James actually started just like, like shadowing operations, right? Like he would just like yes. sit in and, yeah. and take super detailed minutes on everything. And then, uh, and I don't know how it happened, but he just kind of built this whole 6,000 person organization over the past three years that, that kind of keeps the app safe. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, we're talking, uh, he, even though he's based in Silicon, or he was based in Silicon Valley, you know, uh, got his master's degree at University of San Francisco, but he was also a U.S. Air Force military police officer and also a dean of a high school. So he had that content wow. moderation instinct to keep the community safe. And a lot of this just happened on accident where, you know, and that was when we knew for reals, Rexy, we had to succeed because he had a baby and a wife, and he brought his family over from Silicon Valley, and he moved to Manila when we were just a startup. Or, I mean, we still are just a startup, but I mean, we, we had just raised a little bit of funds uh, at the time. And, you know, even to this day, when I look at James's family, I, I see that family, and I feel, you know, we have to succeed at the very least for James's family. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. All right, the question I, I got here. So this is a path that's also common for a lot of startup founders because they, they always have this dilemma of like, do I just roll with it solo, similar to how Roland did and get the proper vendors to come in just and then get the Rexies of the world and whatnot? Because a lot of them also have, uh, the first solo founders are usually the drivers. And I've, I've, I've seen this in a, a, a video in, a y, in the YC startup school lately that the solo founders usually have incredibly high conviction in solving that problem and they can actually make progress in a short amount of time but eventually they hit a wall right and they they realize that oh god i need help right and those help that is that that ability to recruit uh the right people is what's important similar to the path of drew houston of dropbox when he applied for yc yc loved what he was presenting but they couldn't invest in him because he didn't have a team. I had a similar uh, problem before also in Party Foul when I pitched Kickstart three times, but for the first two times, I wasn't invested on because I was, I was a solo founder. 
And I never fully understood like, wow, what's wrong with my team? How, how come I couldn't get invested on until I got that co-founder? Uh, unfortunately, that didn't really pan out uh, the way I wanted that to. But that's what it is. Now, I wanted to talk about the flip side. So there's all rainbows and butterflies here, right? But what happens? Say, for example, you've chanced upon a co-founder that did not pan out well. And let's talk to the lawyer. Because this is also a lot... <laughs> A lot, man. I'm getting a lot of flashbacks right now. There's a, I'm getting a, a lot of flashbacks because I made this mistake so many times. And the last thing you want to do is a fucked up, having a fucked up cap table. So you need to hit him with a prenup somehow. Joseph, for example, Roland liked Rexy, but Rexy was the complete opposite of what he thought he was. How do you get out of those situations in case you chance upon a co-founder that did not? pan out well. Of course, there's vesting, but what's that process like? This, Ron, I always told you this way, way back. At the end of the day, everything should be laid down at the onset. Even before signing anything, things have to be discussed. It's a difficult conversation most of the time. It's awkward because you'll practically be valuing each other's you know, efforts and time before it even happens. So I always advise clients that, you know, I mean, wearing my lawyer hat, I always advise my clients that Everything should be laid, laid down at the onset. And that's where the documentation happens. That's where the lawyers come in. You know, that will have to document what you agreed on. So that's where shareholders agreement happens, which is practically the, you know, the prenup. It's the Bible between the shareholders where, you know, the winding up of affairs happens or is discussed. You know, if you resign for whatever reason, what happens to your shares or if you resign for your function, because there are two different things that you have to consider here, right? Um, as a founder, you're also a shareholder. And most of the time, you also hold a specific position, whether it's a CEO, a COO, or whatever position it is. And technically speaking, those two things are detached. You know, one doesn't really rely on the other. So you can technically resign as a CEO and still retain some of your shares. So that's where right. the shareholders agreement come in. You know, I mean, it has to be laid down. Yeah. What? No, not just resignation. What if I didn't deliver? And now, for example, Rexy, I'll just or Roland saying, "Yeah, I'm all this, but didn't deliver." But you need that equity to move forward. Because if not, you're untouchable. Nobody's going to invest. Nobody's going to be willing to buy that person out and give them a mini exit, right? How does that work? Yeah. So usually, what we do is we put success metrics in. What are your yeah. deliverables? But to be honest, in reality, this doesn't really happen to original co-founders. This happens to okay. subsequent, you know, the late co-founders. co-founders. Yeah, because at that point, because at the onset, it's more of being there is actually your buy-in already. Believing in the vision at the onset, that's already uh-huh. your buy-in. But usually the subsequent, the later co-founders, that's where the metrics come in. What are your deliverables? How do you... You know, every quarter, you usually measure it. You know, what do you have to do every quarter? What type of growth are, is expected from you and things like that. And yeah, when things do get to that point, that's why it's important to write it down, to have everything written down. In a vesting schedule? Does that also be, is that included? Yeah, so usually you remember when we were talking about a CTO from your previous startups, we were discussing about yeah. that. Wherein it ha- they, they have to have a deliverable. You know, like you bring them in for... For shares practically and then you have to write down what type of service you're expected to get otherwise you know after getting the shares it's done i mean they already have what they came in for yeah. so 
there won't be any motivation and that's usually where the friction happens yeah. Roland directly uh, did you ever have that experience of like having to let go a late co-founder a co-founder goal how did you get yourself out of that because again the cap table is king for any kind of progress you need, you need to go through and if you did what did you do Hmm. Yeah, I mean, for us, we in terms of how it was structured from the beginning, we, we did have those conversations pretty early on, probably in the first the first month of of working on the company, and then uh, and we we had you know for us we didn't have it wasn't a shareholders agreement, it was a kind of individual restri- restricted stock agreements that had the vesting schedules there, and it would nice. be you know kind of what's what's a relatively standard. Uh, one one year cliff, right? Which basically means if if it's not a fit yeah. at any point in the in that first year, you can let that person go, and then and they don't get any of the equity, and that's that's just kind of the the ultimate like insurance, I guess. That um, and and one year kind of being enough time to know if this this person's really a contributor at a level of of um, deserving equity, right? I think for Got us, uh, we're lucky to not have had any kind of major incidences of kind of people who've gotten a significant amount of equity in and you've had to to move off the cap table in that way but yeah but i think i think if if we did the those uh the mechanics that we put in place from the beginning around the the vesting would have been yeah i think that would have been a messy situation without it yeah you got to be upfront about all that I mean, that's one of the key things is just really trust and, and honesty in, in those types of conversations. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think we even used, uh, there's a, what is it? Founders.com. Uh, remember I sent that to you, uh, Ron, where yep. it actually <laughs> lists out all the, you know, how early were they, blah, 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 blah. And it gives you kind of like a rough calculation of, of what, what the, the percentage should be and all that type of stuff. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, that stuff is like fully directional. And I, I think there's just kind of, an art yeah. to it, I guess. And I think it's more of the conversation, that awkward conversation happening at the early yeah. stage of the relationship. If you remember, Ron, between you and me, we actually did it, I think, week two. Yeah, and I was just a stubborn dumbass at that time. <laughs> I, was, I was very stingy in terms of you know structure of the company and things like that. So at the onset, we already talked about, okay, what percent, what percent? Okay, to be honest, I don't even remember us talking about what expectations we had of each other. We more right. or less knew what skill sets we had and we more right. or less knew what direction we wanted to go to. We didn't know how to get there, but we more or less knew those things. So we talked about, yeah. I remember talking about percentages and I, I remember talking about what else do we need? <laughs> no, it's because we had that prior relationship of having those uncomfortable conversations, right? Like you, you told me the real stuff. One of the key things too, uh, also Rexy, and this is just a long history of just maybe, you know, folks just don't execute, but people need to know that if you are executing and you're raising subsequent rounds from outside investors, everyone gets diluted anyway. So when you're topping up the ESOP and giving new top-ups to uh, key employees, the ones who continue to provide value over time from series A to our series B, you know, right. maybe our seri- uh, sometime our Series C, sometime later in this year or next year, that ESOP top-up is actually critical to retain the key people in the long term exactly. up until whatever the case may be. So that, that's actually one thing, too, is, you know, have the conversation, see who's ready to just rock and roll, go execute a defensive business and just go have a right of, you know, the, the, the right of your life. And then just check in with each other a year, two years, whatever, 
as we get to those next phases. Because for us, you know, that first year was like, holy crap. Uh, it felt like we were running out of money every month, right, Rexy? Right. Yeah. And, yeah. And the then first two years, we were running out of money every month. It's like, yeah, we're like, oh my God, you know, just paying the bills from our savings, like just gain 25 pounds because the only thing I could afford was, uh, you know, mini stock fried chicken every day, right? <laughs> so, like, That's pretty good, though. <laughs> yeah. Mini stock fried chicken is the bomb, everybody. Yep. And, but, yep. but that's the thing. And I remember I was so broke, right, Rexy? I couldn't even afford mini stock fried chicken. I just couldn't eat. Right. And so when you're at that stage, but then, you know, when, when you do hit that series A or those series B or whatever, and the, the company starts uh, to de, uh, so the word with investors is de-risking. So as right. the, the company starts to de-risk and you find yourself in a more favorable position where you can ask for things like topping up the ESOP and those types of things and, right. and being able to, you know, offset that people who aren't as valuable from the beginning, it, it reflects because, um, right. You know, each round of investment actually dilutes the the older founders. Where at the same time, the the current ones get topped up with each new round. You know, so that is so true. Now let's take our first break. Actually, our only break. And when we come back, we'll be talking about the intangibles of having the right and the proper co-founder, and also opening up the floor to everybody. But let's talk about that more after the break. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey guys, I have a very, very exciting opportunity I want to share with you guys. If you're a B2B startup founder, listen up. Your ticket to growth is here. Introducing Impact 24, the Philippines' largest B2B SaaS challenge. Calling all startups in their pre-launch, pre-seed, or seed stages. This is your chance to accelerate their growth. Submit your pitch to Impact24 and get ready for a 10-week intensive program to elevate your solution. What's in it for you? How about up to 500,000 pesos in MVP project support, exclusive credits from industry partners, personalized mentoring, and a shot to pitch at PH, the country's biggest SaaS conference this April. But yo, you gotta hurry up because submissions close on January 26, 2024 already. Don't miss out on this opportunity to take your startup to new heights. Apply now at sasschallenge.ph. That's sasschallenge.ph. And good luck and I'll see you guys in Impact 24. And we're back in the break. We're still with Roland Ross, Rexy of Kumu, and then Rexy Durado of Kumu, and of course with my co-founder, Joseph of Podcast Network Asia. But... We talked about the tangibles and you know having the difficult conversations and whatnot, but I think the test of a real true foundership or co-foundership 
is when you are at the valleys, per se. And again, looking back into that YC video, which I will link in the show notes, by the way, in hustleshare.com. One, what the characteristics that that video said is that one of the things that you have to look for in a co-founder is two things. Number one is how they handle stress on a personal level. And second is how they help you handle stress because it's a shared burden, right? And nobody uh, can really empathize with you well than your co-founder than your co-founder who can who's been in the trenches with you as well to provide you moral support you know, help overcome some roadblocks. In in your dynamic, Roland and Rexy, can you guys share, you know, whenever you're at those mini-stop moments, you're barely making anything, you're, you're trying to keep the lights on. How do you know you have the right co-founder? And how did you help each other overcome those stressful situations from an intangible point of view? You know, I, I think there's genuine care for our co-founders. I know that we all have this keen sense, Rexy, when one of the guys or one of the team is just, not feeling well and we just check in with each other. I mean, you know, one of the most un, uh, you know, the, the biggest elements in being entrepreneurs, the, the huge psychological cost uh, that comes with yeah. being an entrepreneur where, you know, you're constantly facing challenges all the time. And, you know, one of the key things that I've always been grateful for is the fact that, you know, all the co-founders, and not just the co-founders, but, you know, the senior executive team, we all get the sense when someone's not feeling well. And that's actually one of the reasons why we do have an office in Barakai. Because when someone is freaking out, we just send, we just send them over there. You exiled them there. Yeah, they no, they just work in. They just uh, you know, they they'll bring their like two or three uh, key managers with them, and like the four or five of them just execute uh, well uh, out in Barakai. And I know that's one thing that I feel very grateful for is that you know when things are down. I mean, I, I was actually uh, you know struggling with a couple of things, and you know it's just so nice to get a a, a call of care from from Rexy. So I'll leave that to Rexy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think I think part of it too, what makes it a bit easier is um, is having been working with this the this group of co-founders long enough. And, and in Roland's case, with Angelo and James and, and Andrew, you guys have known each other for twenty years, right? So there is that kind of that history of uh, of just things that you've you've built like a bond that you built together. But I think I think at the end of the, the day, like just being able to to trust the others to you know not not only like from a personal level but like trust them as like great leaders and executors like right. uh just makes those those valleys easier to to kind of go through and, and yeah we, we've had those moments where there's things that we couldn't figure out for a while in terms of um growth or retention or organizational issues but you, you just had kind of enough trust in, in the person whoever it was at the time that had the ball right so they, right. they get it there uh i mean like siri when we were closing our series a we were literally like are, are running out of money, you had to push a lot of things back. And I'm grateful that there is like the, the leadership team had enough kind of trust in, in me to kind of get everything past the finish line uh, right. in, in time enough. Uh, so I think there, that, that's kind of one aspect of it. On the other side, to what Roland was talking about is, you know, uh, I think like moments I think about are like, I don't know if Roland, you remember when you were doing the uh, it kind of in that first year we were leading into the the quiz shows as that growth <laughs> engine because it had gotten us there. Oh, yeah, um, we and I cursed at you guys and slammed the door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were about to pull the, on the, the million peso, the million peso game show. <laughs> right. I was uh, so upset because they were going to pull the trigger on a million peso game show, and then we were going to have uh, what was her name? She was really nice. 
Christine Reyes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Christine Reyes. So Christine Reyes, she's an, she, she's an actress. And so it was like all this hoopla of like having her host, she's going to give away a million pesos. And I was like, and I just like lost it. And I just said the F word. And then I started to go over And, you know, I was being a little beyond. Yeah. And I think the, the mood of that was something like pretty real, which is like, you know, this isn't what we're trying to build, right? And we knew that kind of across the board. We didn't, we didn't come here to build a game show app, but we also kind of knew, saw from the data that, that it was, um, that it was like the best way or our best bet to get to the scale that we needed to get to in order to, to have the kind of community kick in and the, right. uh, the virtual gifts kick in those, all of those things. And, and, and I don't know how we, you know, I think, I think it, it just kind of like, yeah, because like, we'll, yeah, we'll, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and I think that's what's so cool, right? About, you know, having trust and honesty is I could say that and then come back into the room and then we'll just have dinner and just kind of yeah. talk it through. And the cool thing was, it was just like, you know what, F it, let's do it. And what ended up happening was we actually built a user journey funnel of, okay, cool. We, it was a huge acquisition where we had a lot of people come in and then we funneled them in. And wasn't that like one of our biggest spikes in community building because people were going into, uh, and we started seeing the first semblances of live stream communities occurring because so many people had downloaded the app trying to win a million pesos on a game show that I right. swear I thought was the dumbest idea, but you know, it actually worked, you know, and, and that's why, Oh, and also culturally, that's one something too. That's so key is yeah. data driven decision-making takes debates out and literally takes a little crybaby like me and says, Roland, shut up. The data is saying this. And so what's so cool about data driven decision-making is it takes people with big personalities and Correct. and just kind of softens their their personality because the data tells you that x is about to happen right Got and it. so that's that was actually one of those crazy use cases right rexy where you know the results of that big experiment resulted in so much good data that came in towards right. our you know our, our thesis of building authentic communities you know those are that's when you actually build more trust with your team because it's like okay yeah. cool like they were right now, I, I want to uh, double down on, on decision-making, right? So obviously, data is a good, good port. But of course, we all have our own biases as co-founders, and we all have the tendencies. Like One dynamic that Joseph and I have is also, again, I'm eternally optimistic all the time. All the time. Like I always see the positive in every freaking situation. And, I, and we developed a dynamic. And this is my first time to have, actually have a proper full-time co-founder, right? And I always ask him, Joseph, talk me out of this. What am I not seeing right? <laughs> Do you guys have the, what's that dynamic when, when, you know, on the flip side, when someone is, you're down in the dumps, you're trying to cheer each other up. But if someone's overzealous, per se, how do you guys balance each other out? No, that's exactly it. And that's why I have to be accountable to my own personality, is why we have to respect co not just co founders, but as an executive team, that we have to create an environment of experimentation. So yeah. that when we, we are doing an A-B test and say, okay, cool, right? Like we're going to send 30,000 of our users here. And on the same day, we're going to send X amount of our users here. Mm. And then let the data decide uh, on there. Uh. So what happens is, yes, we do have impassioned debates about the type of decisions that we want to make to the product. But a lot of it has to happen in an experimental sandbox where Got we it. run those experiments. So I guess, Rexy, what would you say? Like, yeah, we do have passionate conversations about debates that occur, right. but it has right. to be about the experiment. It can't be about the fundamental decision because 
you know, that's ultimately what keeps everyone so, um, you know, democratized is, you know, we have to come up with really good experiments, but it's the results of the experiment um, right. that we have to honor. And one, one thing that I also add is that one thing we, we, we learned, and I copied this from Amazon, right? Uh, shout out to Ray Rifundo. I, I got this from you. Is that whenever we hit an impasse, the data is there, but sometimes you just really can't get yet on the same page. We copy the disagree and commit rule from Amazon, right? It's like, Joseph, I know you disagree with me, but please disagree and commit on this with me. Because if we do fuck up, it's on me. My ass is on the line. Right, and I know you disagree, but just commit to this decision and let's go with it a hundred percent. Unless you really completely talks me out, talks me out of it. <laughs> no, and I, I think, and I always tell this not just to the team, but even to outside people. Um, between Ron and me, more or less, we have the same north star. We know where we want yeah. to go. It's the execution part that we usually struggle with, and that's where you know that's where trust comes in and communication comes in. Because at the end of the day, you know, Ron will tell me if he's half-baked in an idea and will tell me, okay, you know, throw me some negative stuff if this won't work out. But yeah, at the end of the day also, it's Data who, who's king in, in Podcast Network Asia. So we always rely on that. But basically what we do is we just talk, talk ourselves That's out. why I freak out when we're on the same page. Like, what the fuck? Are you serious? We're on the same page. <laughs> <laughs> There's where's the debate, Joseph. Huh? <laughs> so... All right, guys, I, I, I know we want to talk about uh, more, but we're almost running to an hour. And let's open the floor to, to the rest uh, of the listeners here who grace us their time. And also, we'll end up in the podcast when this goes live in a couple of days. If you guys have questions on how to look for co-founders or the people on, on this call and whatnot, or you want to share something, please feel free to raise your left hand. Not the right. I'm just kidding. No, just your, raise your hand to, to, so we can um, invite you over to speak over at, at this to get this done. But while we're waiting, Roland and Rexy, what are you guys, uh, what are your tips uh, that, that you can share in finding the right co-founders just to make sure that there is a proper structure of how people can can start uh, recruiting, uh, say, an early co-founder or a late co-founder? If you want to be completely honest, Rexy, I'm so sorry, but we didn't even you care about the term. I'm sorry, uh, Ron, but it's like, we didn't care about the title, you're right? Like Got it. we didn't even call ourselves co-founder. I I I even hate the word CEO. I think it's the dumbest thing. Yeah, same. Us, it was just straight up, right? Rexy, we were just like, he was what your you were strategy, right? And I was or you first started out as content, right? And then you were strategy after that. I mean, I didn't even call myself CEO. I think my title was community builder, actually. And so yeah. we were just looking for people who were like down to do this cool thing. And then I don't know, I guess like as the, 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 you know, as we started getting more traction, then we started embracing the word co-founder and founder and all that stuff. And the only time I actually call myself CEO is actually when we're signing investment docs and and stuff like that. But (laughs) honestly, I I think, no, no, seriously, right? Like, uh, I think that's actually one of the key things is it's not so much like finding the right co-founder, but choosing something that you're willing to die for. And when I say die for, I'm not trying to be like over dramatic about it look the average human being spends thirty thousand days on earth and then they die so whatever you're going to spend 24 7 hours on or whatever hours you're going to spend on something you're technically based off of the amount of hours you're spending on this adventure is what you're dying for right and so if you're going to do something just find other people who are just as down for that cause and then figure it out because 
it's too early to worry about these titles because right. you don't even have any traction yet. You don't even have product exactly. market fit yet. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, dude, our, our first thing was a messenger app that no one cared about, right? So, like, I, I think it, it was really about finding something and, and generating some traction. And, yeah. you know, I, I and just being super lucky that, you know, we found people who believed in us. You know, I see folks right. like Carlo and Liza here and, and Franco and Santi, you know, who, who invested in us. And it's just like, okay, cool. You know, now we are getting some semblance of, you know, a business idea, a business model, building traction, da, da, da. And then that's when the title started coming. Got it. Uh, they were thrusted on us more than we actually creating it. I mean, Rexy, I mean, even to this day, you refuse to be called president. So, you know, <laughs> so, yeah. That's amazing. And again, also, I think from the early stage teams that what I see often, because I also mentor in Kubo, right? And, and some other stuff. Again, just trying to pay it forward. I see a lot of early startup founder founding teams have a lot of redundancy on a certain skill. So, for example, there's three co-founders; they're all devs. It's like, dude, this is gonna be Samsung Tech in startup in K drama startup already, right? You need to diversify and look for those people who are complete polar opposites of you, but also share the intangibles, right? That can talk you out of bad ideas. That share the same respect, share the same culture. In the same DNA, I guess, uh, to, to really create that environment. Yeah, I, I don't know, Rexy, you could probably better articulate, you know, what people should be looking for. Because I just realized I just went off on a completely different tangent. But yeah. <laughs> 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 no, I, I think, <laughs> sorry, I, I, I just went in this like random <laughs> spiritual missionary. Uh, so yeah, my bad, my bad. I can't remember the initial question, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, sorry, but I just, I just no, no, what's your tips? Sorry, there was no tips sometimes because I, I guess one of my big things just for the startup community here in the Philippines is not to get so caught up in being a startup founder because, yes. and then it turns into pageantry. That's the worst thing Whoa. that you could do because if you're focused on the pageantry, you won't focus on the defensible execution needed to build a sustainably growing business. You know what yep. I mean? And to even do that, you know, first find something that you're willing to die for. Sorry. So, yeah. Anyways. In fairness, Roland, that makes sense. You know, look for something you're willing to die for and look for people who's willing to do it with you. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still on, it's still in the same pace that Ron was asking. So, it's okay. Okay. okay, okay. <laughs> right, right, Who's willing right. to drink the Kool-Aid, whatever that <laughs> might be. <laughs> While we're at it, what's the worst case scenarios, um, Joseph, that you've seen in a co-founder breakup because it's all not, again, rainbows and butterflies. And you've seen the worst of this all because of your previous life as a lawyer. What's the worst thing that can happen if you don't get this 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 right? To be honest, I, I looking back in, in my previous experiences, I've seen one very messed, messed at least in startup. Was it me? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to names, but okay. I, I had a client before that actually gave up a bunch of stuff for free dev work and didn't get the dev work because he already gave everything up. So that was a real, you know, bad idea. I remember talking to the founder then about how bad an idea. That sounds like me, Joseph. Why are you still giving me? No, but but I, I think what's wrong with that one was because it was rushed. Things weren't, you know, the details weren't talked about. 
So the expectations were quite different. I assume for the developer side or the, you know, the the co-founder side, they were thinking that okay, we'll just be here to support. And for the for for you on your end, you were thinking okay, they'll help me step by step. And right. then the moment you gave up those shares, it was a done deal. You couldn't take it back anymore. And there, and was, there was a deadlock. And there was a deadlock at that point, right? I mean, oh. you couldn't get back your shares. You couldn't get them to sign stuff and. You know, things can really get messed up if you don't go through the process of talking about those details or, you know, so, yeah. I mean, more or less, most of the clients I deal with, they more or less have a, a verbal slash written agreement already. We just have yeah. documented, you know. But there are some cases, like the ones that, like the one you had, where mm. nothing was written. You know, everything was assumed until, you know, that's where the confusion happened. So. Yeah. Now, uh, since uh, while well, nobody's raising hands at the moment, how about late co-founders? How do you structure those types of deals, Roland and Rexy? Also, you know, like you know, you guys have a pretty much core, good core team. How do you define de- define someone who's worthy of getting shares on whether through ESOP or through again a, a significant chunk? Because obviously, as you raise rounds, that needs to be bought, and it's it's also in the, the in the best interest of your your cap table or your investors that no no equity shall be given for free. But if you find that rare being of someone or an employee that deserves some employee stock options that needs to vest or it can be co-founder level at a late stage, how did you guys structure those deals and well, what's the dynamic like with those people? I think for, for us, we've really just leaned on um, on our investors, especially particularly kind of open space, because they've, they've just seen so many of every single startup they invest in as a Series A or Series B startup and has has kind of looked at that question. And, uh, and so it's, you know, in terms of kind of the benchmarking, the structuring, like all of that, we really just lean on their support on it. I think that, and I think, you know, it's ultimately like the, the asymmetry in, in the game, right, is like, uh, we're only as founders, or we should be only with some exceptions of people who can do who can do more than one. Like we're only doing one venture at a time, whereas like investors are are kind of dealing with uh, are and are in it dozens, the twenty, thirties, sometimes hundred. Like uh, you know, for for some of the more broad based funds, like a hundred like companies, they have a view in at a time, right? So so I think that that's really one of those things where it just helps to either lean on somebody like an investor who's who's seen multiple or an advisor or a team member who's been through it before. And yeah, and then that was just like kind of specifically for us uh, uh, with with each round with the Series A, there was a kind of our, our first formal ESOP plan with the Series B kind of uh, or with the kind of ongoing Series B conversations, like an, an expansion, a slight expansion of, of the ESOP. And then with that, we kind of like allocate it into who are the, the key people that we need to get us to the next stage and also who are the people who've been with us, right, that have, uh, have made a really significant impact uh, that we need to both kind of reward and and incentivize for, for the next four or five years. Right. Yeah, because that's actually one of the key things too is just you know, a track record of, uh, of execution. And that's why, you know, OKRs and, and things like yes. that are so important because, you know, it, it's all performance driven, uh, you know, Correct. just exactly what Joseph's talking about. You know, I, I see, oh, wait, I thought I just saw Dana join. 
Rexy, I was just about to say, like yeah, Dana here. Chris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so like Dana here, who's one of our shareholders, right? So, you know, she far and away was one of our top executors. And as a result, you know, she's she's a shareholder in Kumu. And, nice. you know, right, is she in the room? Yep. You know, I, I fear oh, where's she at? I thought I started, but definitely she someone like start. <laughs> oh, okay. someone like her is definitely her. <laughs> yeah, because you know, just from you know her experience at Zalora, you know, helping uh, Wanola with their Series B and Series C, and then most recently at Instacart, and you know, her just quitting her job in San Francisco and making that move to the Philippines to work with us. I, I just think that, like, you know, that's the type of leader who will be eventually a, a founder of her own company and you know that's exactly the type of thing that i learned when i first started so when when i my first uh time when i was a partner of a startup that got an exit my first advisors were luke and kenny uh no so uh kenny howry and luke nosik they were co-founders of paypal and i think paypal was one of the biggest inspirations of the type of culture that we're trying to bring where like they were all classmates and performance driven where so many of their employees spun out and, you know, Reed started LinkedIn, you yep. know, Chad started YouTube, you know, uh, all, all sorts of different, you know, uh, Peter went off and invested in Facebook through yep. Founders Fund. And then uh, what's it? Elon is like launching spaceships into space and electric cars. And so like, you know, and they were all working together. And, and that's exactly the, the type of culture that we're trying to bring is just like looking for rock stars who we could just you know, invest in so that, you know, when Kumo gets to the next stage and they're able to be, you know, Franco, you were telling me what these quote unquote ESOP millionaires from Kumu who then get to spin out and become the future, you know, CEOs uh, of the next tech startups. And so whether right. it's Dana, whether it's Vicky Herrera, you know, uh, Annette Osmania, you know, all these like amazing leaders on the Kumu team who are all, uh, you know, it, again, it, it's just, uh, a track record of of execution and just leadership and of course we're going to invest in them you know Got it. yeah and it's actually i mean i think it's the same criteria as you look for in a co-founder right the people who you end up kind of bringing on i think every person that we brought on to you know as a member of like the esop plan uh mm-hmm. and as a shareholder of kumu like is, is also somebody who if we if we rewound back to the start like we would probably recruit as a co-founder right because you you feel like you can have that level of trust in them and then like and and also like kind of dynamic of trust with each other yeah absolutely yeah all right now we pulled i pulled someone out of the crowd this is right into uh this this warp zone uh a former guest also of hustle share who's uh a big proponent of the sinigang valley movement but i wanted to talk to you david uh davo about you know your experience also being a co-founder of multiple startups now you know some you built it out and you built another one but what, on, on your experience david what were those characteristics that you usually find yourself working with cuz you're coming in a cto majority of the time right uh, unless that 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 has changed you usually pair up with 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 a uh, with a business guy what are those things you look really usually look for 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 those co-founders that you work with Okay, um, I'm, I'm on the road, so forgive no me if missing those that. But uh, one thing I look for when I'm partnering with different um, partners is the vision for the company that we're trying to build. So I think for James, yeah. Fernando, and Jersey, we were trying to build an e-commerce platform for shirt designers 
Um, right. And so I wanted to see how far he wanted the vision to go. And I also see saw how this guy could execute. So it's different with James because James actually approached me. So it was a cool reach out. And mm-hmm. I said, okay, let's have a couple more talks. Uh, let's see what shirt we can, can do. And at that time, I wanted to finally start a startup uh, and join besides just watching and reading about it. Right. And we hit, hit, we hit it off. Yep. Uh, but when it came to my second startup, Expanse, um, right. Josh and I, Josh. I think Josh had a really good track record at SM. And he was working for the C's and he was bringing in uh, clients for, he was filling up um, SM Aura and SMBF and he just had all these relationships with people. He's telling me about how he got to talk to the the guy who bought in Uniqlo, how he built a relationship with them. And right. at the time, you know, uh, Josh knew what he was talking about when it came to, and he wanted to merge into tech startup. So from then, we had a lot more conversations. And then we said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build the tech. You're going to help me build the business for it. So when it came to bringing stuff on the table, it's pretty equal. Right? Nice. That's amazing. Again, thank you very much. And again, sorry for pulling out of the road. Stay safe on the road. Guys, unfortunately, we've been talking a little too much. And we have to wrap this baby up. Again, Roland, Rexy, and Joseph, thank you so much for joining us today. Hopefully, you guys learned again. This is going to be live on the Hustle Share podcast in a couple of days. And this is going to be coming. So, immortalized. And that's what we do now. Clubhouse and podcast at the same time. But before I let you go, follow us on whatever podcast app you're listening to. And if you did say some jargon, it's going to be the show notes and hustleshare.com. And lastly, if you're going to be involved in how we also grow this community and how we involve the guests and also the topics we want to uh, discuss, it's going to be in the Hustle Share community on Facebook. And lastly, if you guys want to suggest a guest, it's going to be in the Hustle Share chatbot at m.me slash hustleshare powered by chatbot.ph. Again, Roland, Rexy, and Joseph, thank you very much. Thanks, Ron. Yeah, thanks, thanks Ron. Man. Sorry, I, I'm Alrighty. just looking on everyone's profiles. Join the move. I'm looking at like, oh, dude, we need a UI UX person. Uh, oh, we need more. Things. So I'm just clicking on everyone's profiles to see who we need to send LinkedIn. Hey Hustlers, it's time to talk business once again and we're excited to share a bit more info about our sponsors, Sprout Solutions. And again, just like what I said at the start of the episode, you should check out Sprout's Payroll Starter as you grow your own startup. Because this bundle that they have is literally what you need to take your startup to the next level as you grow your employees. And this bundle is your key to freedom, including payroll outsourcing to experts, a subscription to timekeeping and attendance software, and government compliance services. Sprout's Payroll Starter has you covered for payroll, BIR, SSS, and taxes. All the stuff that no founder loves to do. So let Sprout handle the busy work and say goodbye to lines and tax payment stress. All this for as low as 5,000 pesos. Again, that's just 5,000 pesos all in for your payroll and HR needs. So visit sprout.eh payroll-starter-monthly-5k or again, just click the link in the description box of this episode to elevate your business management game. And again, big thank you to Sprout Solutions for liberating your time for what truly matters. Hey, Hustlers, wish there was an easy way to open a bank account and grow your money without the hassle of lengthy application process and income documents? Well, I got good news because today's sponsor, Uno Digital Bank, 
is here to help you achieve your financial goals. You can easily open an account with the Uno app in just five minutes and one valid ID. And as one of the six digital banks licensed by the Banco Central ng Pilipinas, the company is committed to providing customers with simpler, better, and more accessible banking. Last year, Uno Bank was recognized by the Asia Banking and Finance Awards and bagged the title Open Banking Initiative of the Year due to the success of its partnership with Gcash, one of the Philippines' leading mobile wallet platforms. And with the Uno mobile app, you can access an hashtag UnoReady savings account and enjoy daily interest crediting. With their hashtag UnoEarn or hashtag UnoBoost time deposit accounts, you can enjoy a high interest rate of up to 6.5% per annum. Enjoy monthly payouts with hashtag UnoEarn Earn in flexible tenors with hashtag UnoBoost. Other app features include pay bills, the Uno Virtual Debit MasterCard, life insurance, scan and pay with QRPH, and phones. And the one thing that I really love about Uno Digital Bank is they're open to collaborate with a lot of Filipino startups. I've had a chance to see the partnerships that they've had lined up with the startups that they have, and it's truly exciting to see how a digital bank like Uno can enable startups to unlock the power of fintech through digital banking. So if you're ready to elevate your banking experience, download the Uno mobile app today from the Google Play Store or App Store. Or if you want to collaborate with them, I'll be happy to give you an intro. Just shoot us an email at hello at huffleshare.com. Hey, Hustlers, I hope you're having a great 2024 so far. As you know, a lot of startups had a very challenging 2023, and hopefully things are going to do better this year for a lot of us. Not just because it's the year of the dragon, but also because our sponsor, Dragon Pay, is here to help your startups process payments in the most efficient way. Established in 2010, Dragon Pay empowers businesses of all sizes to accept and disperse payments through secure and convenient channels, giving your customers the flexibility to choose the payment method that suits them best. With over 85 partner channels, 35,000 partner branches nationwide, including QRPH, e-wallets, crypto, buy now, pay later, and many more. They also process an astonishing 15 million transactions processed globally each month. DragonPay is your trusted choice for online payments. And here's something to show you how legit DragonPay is. DragonPay was named FinTech of the Year at last year's Philippine FinTech Festival in 2020. So let's make 2024 extra prosperous for you and your startup in this year of the dragon. For more details, head on over to dragonpay.ph. That's dragonpay.ph. Trust the pioneer. Trust DragonPay. Uh, recruitment emails. <laughs> oh, sorry. All right. And I'll see you guys in the next episode. Peace.